Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. My name is Chris Hong. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago Department of History, and I'm an intern at the Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Today we're joined by Jonathan Levy, author of Freaks of Fortune and a professor of U.S. History, Fundamentals, Social Thought, and the College at the University of Chicago. He's an historian of economic life, and we're here to discuss his forthcoming book, Ages of American Capitalism. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're writing a one-volume history of American capitalism, which is a major, major undertaking. How do you get roped into such an ambitious project? Well, I wrote myself. Um, the book started as a, as a class on the history of American capitalism that I wanted to teach. And at that point, I was finishing a book that you mentioned, Freaks of Fortune, which is the history of insurance and risk in the 19th century. And I was trained as a 19th century historian, but that book took me back to the history of maritime insurance as far back as the medieval period. And I, I fell in love with the early modern period with um, the era of commerce, maritime um, exchange. But when I went to teach the class, I didn't know much about the 20th century. And then as I was about to teach it, the financial crisis of 2008 happened. So to teach the class, I had to develop a 20th century narrative that could get the students to 2008. And there weren't books that could do that to my satisfaction. And once I developed a possible version of that narrative, which reached back to the colonial American period too, I said, well, why not write it up as a short, punchy book? And you see the result, one of the longest books ever. <laughs> A length that's fully justified, I think. I think so, too. Um, I guess moving along to, you, you really opened the book with um, a hefty kind of theoretical conceptual section. And I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about your definition of capital as a process. Um, so not a fund or a physical thing, or even really a factor of production. So why do you take that approach in the book? And how does it help us understand American capitalism in the periods that you discuss? Well, I think implicitly, this is a, a point that could be debated, but I, I think implicitly for a long time now, when economists talk about capital as a, a factor of production, they're basically imagining a factory, um, an intermediate or what's sometimes called an already produced good, a capital good um, that produces goods for consumption. And that conception of capital as, ca as a capital good or factor of production, as you said, it works, it's illuminating for industry, for the industrial sector, um, but it's a very restricted, very restrictive uh, definition and picture of capital. So capital is process. You can find that language in, in Marx when Marx discusses capital as a social relation, but it's even more prominent and I think better theorized, better argued in Babelin. It's not hard uh, to read it into Keynes's capital theory as well, uh, which suggests that Capital is the process through which actors turn wealth into legal assets that generate pecuniary profits. So in this definition, capital is still an instrumental good, uh, but towards the realization of, of a yield, not towards production. So this is capital as a factor of profit making, not as a factor of, of industrial production. Now, of course, you can make profits through industrial production, certainly, uh, but you can also do it through racial slavery. That's uh, part of the book. You can do it through finance as such or through other kinds of service provision. Um, so the idea behind the definition of capital as process is to get a, a broader optic beyond industry, which I think is essential for narrating uh, the history of American capitalism across periods. So is this a way of getting us uh, beyond the monetary real dichotomy in economic theory? Yes. So that 
definition of capital as a factor of production abstracts from money. It treats money, finance, credit as separate, less real, epiphenomenal. And I think that, that you know, for certain purposes of doing economics of a certain kind, uh, of, for modeling, um, that might be a necessary distinction to make, a necessary working distinction. But I think oftentimes it becomes more so than a practical distinction, almost metaphysical, almost epistemological. And I think that's a mistake. And, and the task, or one of the tasks for the book is to try to integrate issues of money, finance, and credit with issues of labor, production, enterprise, uh, and consumption. So, so I think you're right to suggest that, uh, that that's a motivation behind the way I try to define capital in the book. Yeah, I, I really appreciated this, the definition that you proposed. And it, I mean, I think it, it sort of does a great job of showing how the, I guess, maybe the standard or the idea of, you know, capital as factory, essentially, or um, that example can be a, a version of capital, but the key is more the profit making or the, you know, the idea of getting a return on, on existing wealth. Um, and that makes a, that, that helped me understand a lot of how a lot of these different uh, types of economic activity sort of fit together. One thing I was wondering about is you, so after you describe this idea of capital as a process, you say that there are still, um, you know, certain uh, things that it includes. And and one of the things that you argue is that you say that there there must be some sort of capital scarcity, that, you know, there there, there needs to be scarcity of, of capital assets um, in order, well, I, I, this is my question, there needs to be scarcity of capital assets. But I was sort of curious, is that like, uh, you know, is that, a necessity in like a natural law sense, like there always will be, or is it, you know, if there isn't scarcity of capital, then something bad happens and the economy collapses or like it no longer is capitalism, whatever, whatever then exists. So yeah, what, what was, um, what are the consequences, I guess, of, of or, or why, is, why is it necessary to have scarcity of capital? I hear you. So another reason why I think it's too restrictive to define capital as a capital good or a factor of production is that capital, is, is actually a very unique commodity and that it's not necessarily scarce. So other physical commodities, wheat, machines, labor power, population, there's only so much of these commodities. There's, there's a scarcity value to them. Capital, once you incorporate credit into the definition, the possibility, and I, I think we see this in the most recent period of, of capitalism, uh, the possibility to synthetically create uh, new capital assets through the credit system is enormous. Now, I suppose there's only so many zeros a bank could put at the end of the ledger, only so many zeros the Fed could put on its balance sheet. So I, I suppose at some point you hit infinity, but I see capitalism, uh, part of what defines capitalism as an economic system is it both both leverages this capacity to, to create capital assets through the credit system, while also restricting their ownership and the benefits of their ownership uh, to a particular class of individuals who are the owners of capital, capitalists. Now, if everyone had free access to capital, an economy like that might not work well, it might collapse, it might be inflationary, although I don't think necessarily, uh, but I do think uh, an economy in which everyone had free ac access to capital, we would have to give it a new name because again, capitalism as an economic system to me depends upon vesting the scarcity value of capital uh, in the hands of capitalists. There are a number of moments in the book where this point I think is placed in sharp relief after the civil war, the return to the gold standard, uh, the Volcker shock is another moment uh, in 1979 to 1982. Uh, where politics, and I, and I think this is where this question is settled, not in any, uh, not in any manner of, of natural law or natural economic processes or economic processes, uh, but politics determines the scarcity of value of capital and, and who has access to control over it. Got it. So it's not something that we should necessarily be aiming to preserve the scarcity. It's more of a, uh, an no. open question than that. No, I agree. Yep. Uh, based on my reading of your book, uh, when the scarcity value of capital has been put into question, well, what winds up happening, or what has wound up happening historically, is some kind of political project to restore that scarcity value. And in your book, those tend to be moments uh, when we transition f out of one age of capitalism and into another. 
hence uh, the plural in your title, ages of American capitalism. So I'm wondering, uh, what characterizes one age of American capitalism from another? How did you choose to periodize? Because full disclosure uh, to the listeners, you're our academic advisor, uh, Chris and I's, and one of the things you always tell us is that historians' task is to control time. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the craft and your strategy for controlling time in this book. So I think, to me, what characterizes different ages and how I thought about periodization and controlling time has to do with major shifts in the kinds of assets that capitalism works through. And then also, I think, shifts in political economy. Um, so if if the the qualities of the assets define the age, I think in each instance, it's state action uh, that explains why the ages change. So the first age in the book, commerce from uh, the British imperial settlement of North America uh, through the American Civil War and era of early modern empires, first the British, then the US, uh, that recognized the value of commerce, the value of market access, promote commerce, but the dominant capital assets are, are land and also slaves, enslaved people. It, the Civil War, I think the greatest moment of discontinuity in American capitalism uh, with the abolition of slavery, the abolition of slave capital, uh, also achieved by the state, of course, uh, during the war, uh, which initiates both industrialization and also secures the scarcity and value of capital through, through the gold standard and also secures the ages to twin dynamics, both growth through industrialization, through the rise of industrial capital goods, as we were talking about earlier, the factors of production, uh, and then also the, the volatile financial dynamics of the period which culminate um, in the Great Depression. Another shift, uh, the New Deal, um, the next age, the age of, of control, uh, the New Deal states efforts to uh, control capitalism, um, namely by fixing capital uh, in industry, and then another shift in 1980, the age of chaos, a shift away from industry towards a more service-based economy towards, towards finance achieved by the Volcker shock. And then I think in terms of the politics best encapsulated by uh, the Clinton administration's desire during the 1990s to facilitate uh, a finance-driven uh, global capitalism. So it's really the, the type of assets that, that uh, capital is working through. I like that, that, that capital works through certain specific mediums. I think that's um, right. I mean, I think that other historians, you know, who have, who have done it differently, um, think about the rise of markets, right? The rise of market exchange, then you could get a different periodization. People have talked about a market revolution in the antebellum period. If you think about industry or industrialization as such, some would focus on the late 19th century, do a break. Um, uh, at the 20th century with the rise of giant corporations. Um, I think the New Deal is generally understood to be a, a major break. And then the 1970s is another moment. And I think there, I kind of included the 1970s within the age of control. Um, others would kind of maybe think of the 1970s as being part of a subsequent age. So, so these debate, you know, these moments get argued uh, and people have different touchstones they use to, to do it. But but I think, again, as you said, it's when it's the quality of the different assets that get capitalized, I think this periodization emerges you know, quite clearly. I feel like every one-volume history of America is sort of uh, it, always an implicit argument with every other one-volume history of America. Uh, and the, like the periodizations you choose can say something about your theory, but also uh, something about the stakes for the present. Uh, as, as you talked about the inspiration for this book, it's... 2008. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the stakes of periodizing this way and placing the 70s in the age of control and starting the age of chaos with Reagan. Sure. I mean, I think that most, yeah, I don't want to characterize other people's books, but the kind of dominant narrative uh, for American economic history, I think modern economic history in general, was a narrative of an industrialization. Um, often thought of pre-industrial economies as being perhaps traditional, pre-modern, uh, perhaps even pre-capitalist. I think um, you know, this is a synthetic book that draws on the research of, of many, many other people. And I think the last generation of, of scholarship has, has done a number of things. Uh, first, has certainly underscored the economic vitality of pre-industrial economies. 
whether it's the commercial revolution of the early modern period or uh, books, and there's a number of different books that, that make the case differently on the economic dynamism of, of slavery, uh, of chattel slavery uh, in the pre-industrial period. And so, you know, the narrative in the age of commerce is an emergence of capitalism narrative, but it's not a sharp transition uh, from a pre-modern to a modern economy. And so hopefully uh, readers of the book would, would get a sense of the economic vitality of the pre-industrial period. Uh, then, you know, you have to figure out what to do with the post-industrial period, which is also challenging. And we talked a little bit about that uh, with the definition of capital and capitalism used in the book, hopefully with its, its ability to capture post-industrial dynamics. Now, as I say post-industrial, I almost hope you go back and delete that word because that's, that's a, a big part of what the book is, is trying to do is, is not to define the post-1980 period as post something more normal or more obvious or more legible, but actually to kind of dig into the 1980, post-1980 dynamics as such. And you know, the book talks about a political economy of asset price appreciation, uh, other you know, arguments, other concepts, other topics covered that try to kind of get into this period uh, with the idea hopefully being uh, that you know, when you understand the period on its own terms, this is a nice uh, Hegelian point, it means you're about <laughs> ready to uh, move on, move beyond it, that the Al Minerva is about to take flight. And so, and so you know, that's, that's the effort from a historical, or from a historic, you know, the kind of work that historians can do to contribute to um, you know, contemporary issues, contemporary problems. What do you do now? I just talked about the pre-industrial period and the post-industrial period. What do you do with industrialization? The most important, which is still the Industrial Revolution, I think is still the most important singular event in all of economic history. And I think they're, again, drawing on the scholarship of other, other people, you know, lots of, or many of the classic themes of industrialization, uh, the rise of wage labor, giant corporations, railroads emerge in the book. Uh, but there's also a, an environmental narrative that has to do with energy transition. Um, mm. and, and I think, you know, Climate change very much being part of contemporary politics, I, I would I hope actually that this book would contribute to a much larger phenomenon in historical scholarship of reimagining industrialization as an environmental movement, ultimately as a climatological event as well. And so the kind of periodization is also the periodization also relates to our contemporary moment in that respect as well. So doing away with any kind of fetish or nostalgia for the industrial age. Yeah. You know, I believe that, yeah. you know, I believe that that's a huge problem in our contemporary politics is nostalgia for the, uh, for the post-war period, nostalgia for industrial society. I think it's totally misplaced. Uh, there's no good reason to go back to industrial society. Do you want to go work in a, in a, in a, in a factory, a dangerous, monotonous, um, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't respect people who did that and who do, but I don't think that should be our aspiration in terms of our uh, politics. Uh, and so the issue is how do you how do we move beyond not just the post-war period but also the period that I think we've been living in the last forty years, and yeah. and I don't think nostalgia uh, is ever a very um, profitable political stance. You know this, this podcast is called reviving growth Keynesianism, and it, mm. it, it, that's because that's because we are you know like you inspired by Keynes, and mm. we do have a kind of or at least maybe I'll just speak for myself. We do have a kind of admiration for some of the achievements of the post-war or the you know the the mid-century moment, the New Deal order, I put it, is it's like um, when Marx talks in the 18th Brumaire about the French Revolution and how they put on Roman clothes and spoke Roman phrases. You know, they went into the past in order to go into the future. That's kind of the way that we think, I think about reviving Zionism. Uh, so it might be worthwhile to, to sort of dig into that mid-century moment and the New Deal order and talk to a real economic historian about, you know, what it means and what it was. Um, so, so to get into that, you know, talking about uh, implicit arguments with other books, a lot of people distinguish between a first and a second deal. And the first New Deal is Roosevelt's first term, and it's really exciting. It's, it's the 100 days. It's the National Recovery Administration. It's unionization. It's sit-down strikes. It's sort of you know, explosive, new, experimental, pragmatic uh, stuff. Uh, and then the second New Deal is the second term, and that's kind of a letdown. It's the quote-unquote end of reform to a lot of people. It's sort of just a turn to macroeconomic aggregates and, you know, what will be eventually be Cold War liberalism. Uh, but in your book, it strikes me that there are fascist analogies in your discussion of the first New Deal. 
And your, your discussion of the second New Deal is much more uh, positive. Uh, so I, I just wanted to ask you to reflect on, on maybe some of those thoughts. Um, okay, so I think that, so first of all, the New Deal chapter was the hardest chapter to write in the book because uh, there's so many things going on, right? There's, it's alphabet soup. There's so many acronyms. It's very difficult to, to control. Um, I actually think there's three moments. I, I didn't argue for a third New Deal because I thought that'd be even more confusing in the book. But as I see it, there's, there's three moments. There's, there's the first administration, the first 100 days. Um, there, there are a number of, I think, quite radical measures that should be celebrated, namely FDR's decision to go off gold, which was a courageous decision, which reversed the slump. Um, I also think the AAA was extraordinarily significant um, in propping up commodity prices and reversing deflation. Now, the NRA, is, is crying out for a historian to write it. I mean, there really hasn't been a great study of the NRA. Nonetheless, I think the idea behind the NRA, which was overproduction as the problem, the fundamental problem that needed to be solved in the Great Depression was garbage, which I'm sure you would agree with as a growth to Keynesianism. Overproduction <laughs> is never the problem. Right? The problem is oh, you're not realizing economic potential, right? Um, and the NRA was kind of a mess. It had good labor provisions, so it, it was a, uh, on the path towards the Wagner Act, towards collective bargaining, so that was good. Uh, but I don't think it would have been, I don't think it would have worked. Uh, of course, it was struck down by the court. The second New Deal, I think, is more coherent um, intellectually. I think it has the most radical legislation in all the New Deal, which is the Public Utility Holding Company Act, uh, which really comes, off, uh, comes after rentiers and all kinds of financial shenanigans occurring in capital markets and promotes the idea of a public utility, which is an idea we could use today in our politics. With that said, I see that second New Deal is consolidating what I call in the book income politics, mm. which comes out of the late 19th century, which really sees the New Deal's central task as supporting uh, pay, namely pay for white male breadwinners. And you can do that through you can do that through income taxation and distribution. You can do it through collective bargaining. Uh, you can do it by supporting uh, high wages. You know, the New Deal uh, could not solve unemployment uh, because, in part because of the persistence of, of high wages, um, which made it, I think, that's a controversial play. Um, it's more coherent, but I don't think it's that radical. The third moment starts with the recession in 1937 and goes towards 1939. The recession within the Depression which is caused by a dramatic fall in industrial investment. It's a uniquely industrial recession within the depression. It didn't affect agriculture uh, as much as it did uh, the industrial sector. There, this is the end of reform narrative, as I read Brinkley's book called End of Reform, because uh, there's a turn towards anti-monopoly and antitrust. And of course, if you think the NRA is great, the NRA was a, a kind of corporatist, anti-competition industrial policy, then of course you think that uh, the turn towards antitrust in 37, 38 uh, wasn't particularly radical. Um, there's something else going on in 37, 38 too. You mentioned that. Finally, uh, Harry Hopkins and Beardsley Rummel convinced FDR while he's on vacation that maybe we should use compensatory budget deficits. Mm -hmm. So the kind of Keynesian fiscal policy um, that, that, uh, that gets consolidated after the war uh, so that happens, but, but not that much. I mean, as many scholars have said, um, compensatory uh, fiscal spending, counter-cyclical fiscal spending was not really tried during the New Deal. It didn't really happen. Then you have a third thing, which I think is, you know, which I, which I like, which is the works financing bill of 1939, which is there's, if there's one act that like the Biden administration can just pull it off the shelf and just pass it, you know? Uh, the works financing act created regional investment trusts uh, with the idea being that not just budget deficits to kind of play with the aggregates to bring up aggregate demand, but actually you know, direct programs of public investment focused on regional, regional development. Um, and when that happens, the industrial capitalists freak out. They stop investing. They complain about being taxed. Um, they do not want to see the federal government seize control over the investment function. And, and, that's, and, and that bill failed, failed to pass for a number of reasons, other reasons too. Um, that bill fails to pass. That to me really sets the hard limit 
to the New Deal and to the New Deal state. It can, which is very important, it can support incomes, Mm -hmm. especially in industry for male pay. It can support support commodity prices. That's also important. Another reason why things unravel in the 1970s. But what it can't do uh, is politicize investment. So it has income politics, but I don't think it has a very robust politics of capital investment. Now, World War II changes that uh, because during the war, you do see the federal government uh, through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, through the Defense Plant Corporation, engage in public investment on behalf of the war. Um, And so that question gets paused to some degree. And then there's a chapter in the book called The Post-War Hinge, where I think after the war, you see these final questions settled and industrial capitalists take back control over the investment function in return for investing themselves and employing men in industry. And the New Deal state then has to fall back upon uh, Keynesian fiscal policy as we know it, which is better to have that than not to have that. Uh, And then also onto uh, income supports through the expansion of the welfare state, through the expansion of social security uh, and other measures like that. So it's a redistributive politics that has an edge and then it goes after the investment function and it can't quite capture the whole thing. It can't capture the whole thing and it can deal in the aggregates, but it can't get inside the aggregates. You know, as late as the Truman administration, you can find Kesserling, who was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, saying we need to have uh, a Keynesian fiscal policy of adjusting aggregates, but then we also need to have an institutional policies uh, dealing with uh, the actual fabric of institutions of economic life. Getting inside the aggregates here would mean paying more attention to uh, regional inequalities in America, like the South or the West, or or paying more attention to racial and, and gender dynamics. It would mean it would mean um, engaging in economic development, which would clearly mean shifting resources into underdeveloped parts of the country, rural areas, eventually inner cities. Uh, it would mean paying attention to relational inequalities having to do with race, gender, and sex, and not only thinking about uh, distribution of income through male pay. And then third, I think finally, it would deal with corporate governance. Um, so we know other you know, industrial economies coming out of the war, Germany is an example that people like to cite. I think it's a good example. Think about democracy and the restoration of democracy after World War II as, in, as enabling lab, labor uh, to have a seat at the table in corporate boards, to be part of investment decisions. Of course, there was a discourse within the American labor movement along these lines called industrial democracy. Uh, but instead, you get a, a very different um, kind of uh, collective bargaining in the United States, which is built, uh, built around adversarial uh, bargaining over wages. So I, I kind of characterize that as, as, a, as also part of income politics, as opposed to incorporating labor into a politics of capital investment. So if it's not the state that, um, that fixes investment in the age of control, or at least not entirely the state, I think you point to corporate managers oriented towards long-term investment that are semi-autonomous from the owners of capital. They kind of sit between uh, capitalists and laborers as they try to put capital on the ground, as you say. So how, how were they able to, to do that successfully and, and what went wrong in the 70s? Well, this is a difficult moment for me, for my, for my interpretation in the book, because as you know, I subscribe to Keynes' theory of liquidity preference which says that all things being equal, we should expect owners of wealth to not invest long-term in production, to not take the risk of a long-term production in in industry, but instead to um, store their wealth in liquid assets, whether for purposes of precaution, short-term speculation. And so I think um, what I call in the book, perhaps somewhat inelegantly, illiquidity preference comes out out of politics. I think the war created a political situation in which industry had to be willing to employ men uh, through industry and pay them relatively high wages, higher wages than they had in the past, or else the autonomy of industrial corporate managers would have been threatened politically, could have been threatened by the state, could have been threatened by their stockholders. So I see this moment as kind of an exception to the rule for how we should ordinarily expect capitalists uh, to behave. Um, there's a political reason for it. I, I think another reason would be more sociological that you, for the first time you actually have trained 
uh, a managerial class. It'd be Chandler's kind of visible hand people in places like uh, Harvard Business School or Alfred Sloan at MIT uh, that actually have a kind of investment in production as such. They kind of want to see the factories work. They want to produce goods much more so than they want to make profits per se. So, I, so, so for me, it's actually an anomalous period. I think 1970s, much more so a reversion once you get into crisis, and we can talk about that if you like, but much, so a, a, much more so a reversion to what you would normally expect after 1970, uh, which is high liquidity preference among capitalists if, if you leave them alone to their own, own devices and their own preferences. I was wondering if we could could pick up the idea of liquidity preference a little bit, because I think this is sort of, you know, it's very central to your argument. And it's also, I think, a place where you depart from maybe the, certainly the like econ 101 idea of investment, which um, uh, would argue that left to their own devices, investors or capitalists will seek the highest return. And that because they're all doing that, as long as they're, you know, reasonably competent at it, you'll get sort of the, the, ideal out, uh, allocation of, of capital to the most productive um, uh, uses. And so this is sort of the view is that, you know, you let capital move around because people are, uh, investors are trying to maximize their returns. They'll, they'll assign it to the most productive investments and we'll get economic growth and things will be great. And you, you object very strongly to this view um, and, you know, you, you, in the introduction, you say, like, if there's one thing that I'm arguing against is this idea that uh, free movement of capital will, will lead to, to great outcomes. And it's, I, as I understand it, it's because you, you believe that actually the preference for liquidity will override the um, desire to maximize pecuniary returns. Um, and that seems like such a small, you know, difference on the one hand, like the trade-off between a little bit more certainty versus a little bit more money. Um, but it has such profound implications for for capitalism and for your argument. So I was wondering if you could just walk us through that, both you know, why people have this preference for liquidity and then why it causes so many problems in terms of allocating assets. Okay, yeah, so, the, so Keynes's point, which I appropriate you know, in the book, is that all things being equal, the owners of wealth would rather store its value instead of parting with liquidity and taking the risk of a, a long-term investment in production. Now, I focus on two reasons for liquidity preference, right? Distinguish between them. One is precautionary and the other is speculative. That is Keynes's language from the general theory. Um, so the precautionary liquid assets store value over time. So you don't risk losing value over time. Um, you can hoard cash, which will do that barring inflation. Uh, so to go back, you know, why would you do that instead of um, invest in, in production? Um, to go back to those factors of, of production. I mean, if you think about it, when you invest in a factory long-term, I mean, it takes time. You have to part with cash, with money. You have to build a factory. You have to hire labor. They might go on strike. You have to sell a product. You have to find a consumer. You have to sell it above the cost of production to make a gain. In the meantime, the value of your capital, the factory, you use it up, it depreciates. It's a lot of work. It's a risk. Um, so, I mean, I think there is a kind of rationality to what Keynes is suggesting here, uh, that all things being equal, that many capitalists might want to uh, play it safe, just hoard cash. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the precautionary. The second motive is speculative. Here, short term, buy an asset, a stock, a house, hope it appreciates in value in capital markets, uh, sell it, make a profit through a capital gain uh, repeat. So I guess just maybe sort of make two points to try to explain, you know, why I see these dynamics as being um, prominent. Uh, first, and this goes back to an earlier point we touched upon about the scarcity value of capital. I mean, capitalism, it creates assets that are liquid, which give you both options, precaution and speculation, right? So if you take today, the most liquid assets, a US bond, it stores value, but you can also trade it. You can cash it out, for the next speculative strike of say in a, in a stock market, emerging market, whatever. So liquid capital gives you both options, right? To store value through precaution and also to make profits speculatively. So what could be better than that? What could be better? I mean, this is the ultimate capitalist fantasy as I see it, risk-free profit-making. Problem is, and I think this is another one of Keynes' essential in insights. If you do that, it comes at the expense of of production, of the kind of investment that gives you employment 
and the kind of investment that maxim maximizes economic potential for wealth creation. So maybe maybe two more kind of, okay, so why, that's the setup, but why would we expect it to be true? And, and let me just take maybe two more cuts at this. I mean, there's many cuts you could take, but just, but just two. So first, as a historian, you have to ask the question, why in all of human history, millions of years, why did industrial revolution, modern economic growth arrive so late, right? Why didn't this happen earlier? And I think the answer from the perspective I've been laying out is that, well, owners of wealth store their wealth. Mostly they invested it in land, uh, land being the most liquid asset before capitalism. It's also a store of power in addition to being a store of value. And so, you know, you, you wouldn't expect to see people who own wealth shift their wealth into things like industrial production. I mean, industrial capitalists are extraordinarily vulnerable once they make their investments. They're vulnerable to labor action. They're vulnerable to the dynamics of markets for their products. It, it's very risky to part with liquidity and it's very uncertain to make these kinds of investments. And so I think all things being equal, Keynes is right. You shouldn't expect owners of capital to do that. And when they do do it, it's one of two things. Either it's a weirdo, right? Like Henry Ford, uh, who you know, was a sort of tinkerer, a producer himself. He loved industry, didn't really care about finance or money. Maybe he didn't really care about profits that much either. Someone like Ford, or you need a real bastard, you know, who just lives to exploit wage labor, like a Henry Frick. These people exist too. Or second, you would need states, you would need politics to force capital uh, investment into the kinds of production that yield the most benefits for a society at large. And if you don't have one of those two things, uh, a kind of, I think, unique um, psyche within, within uh, the capitalist class or states that force capitalists to act in particular ways or take, take on the role of investment themselves, what you can expect is liquidity preference. You can expect hoarding, or you can expect you know, financial speculation with the idea being that you know, this fantasy of risk-free profit making, which is you know, very much part of our capital markets today. And, and so you know, looking at the history, I think that, that, that these points are, are borne out quite well. Just to just to kind of add on to that, I guess taking this concept of you know the risk-free return and and Keynes's theory of liquidity preference into some of the more empirical material uh, that you present in uh, the late '70s, early '80s, the so-called magic mm -hmm. of the market. It strikes me that you also leverage, I guess, the concept of transactional liquidity in these internationalizing capital markets to describe the the rhythms of the credit cycle, and especially moments of crises, where this assumption that there will always be uh, a buyer at the other end for your, your asset, for you to convert your assets. Um, that assumption kind of evaporates in these moments of crises and suddenly like the market disappears, right? Assets can no longer be priced. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about, um, you know, the magic of the market that so characterizes this period. Yeah, so there's one point here, which is quite theoretical. I hope it's not too abstruse, but oftentimes liquidity is associated with money or equated with money. And I, I think that's actually not right. I think liquidity has to do with the ability to store value. And the most liquid asset, the relatively most liquid asset is the asset that can store value, which, which relates to the point of, of in a pre-industrial economy, land being a liquid asset. You couldn't sell land necessarily. It's just that it stored value. Now, institutionally, one of the unique features of capitalism is that it makes money uh, the most liquid asset. And so two different qualities, which is the store of value, and also merchantability or, or the kind of transactional quality of the asset uh, becomes associated with liquidity too. And so what makes an asset liquid is that it stores value and that it can be traded. So these two, these two things don't have to go together, but they do, they do today, uh, which is why money um, or the most money-like assets like US treasuries are, are the most liquid. So your point about the magic of, mar of the market has exactly to do with this. New Deal regulations in the financial industry siloed uh, capital markets, made it very dif difficult to uh, trade assets across different segments, whether it's 
um, thrifts, uh, mortgage markets, commercial banking, investment banking. And one of the things we see happen uh, starting in the 1980s is as those walls come down, we start to see more transactional liquidity across different asset classes within financial markets. Uh, and the belief, right, based upon the presence of that transactional liquidity, that you'll always, will always be able to find a, a buyer um, for any asset that you want to sell. Now that's a fetish, right? That's the fetish of liquidity to use Keynes's term. It's not true. Uh, in moments of panic, when confidence evaporates from financial markets, all of a sudden you can find yourself not uh, being able to find a buyer for an asset. As they say in financial markets, it's you know, you catch, you're trying to catch a knife on the way down. It's not a, it's not a pretty thing. And as we know, since the 1980s, ever more, um, the backstop for transaction, transaction liquidity has been the Federal Reserve. And so the magic of the market, the belief that there always will be a buyer for any asset actually has been proved true. Uh, the state will buy these assets in a crunch. We've seen that during the, uh, the last year with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. I guess the other instance of this since 1980, the most prominent instance, the most infamous instance would be the mortgage-backed security. I mean, the mortgage-backed security is exactly this capitalist fantasy that we could synthetically create an asset, right? That will pay us a yield and hedge it this way, that way, this other way, right? Someone will always buy it. We can always fund it, even in an overnight repo market. It's liquid, right? Um, and we can make profits risk-free. You know, what's better than that? What's better than a risk-free profit? Of course, except, you know, as we know, that unraveled. And in the end, um, you know, the Federal Reserve uh, had to step into the markets to provide, to provide liquidity. So picking up on the concept of a fetish for liquidity, I wanted to ask you about the ways that Freud kind of shows up in this book every once in a while. Because your second thesis on the history of capitalism that you lay out in the introduction is that the profit motive is key, but it's not enough. You know, there needs to be some kind of non or extra rational supplement to the pure logic of calculation. That's what you were talking about with like, you need like a bastard or uh, a weirdo, an upset, a, a weirdo. And a, it seems to be like this turn to psychology can help you zoom in on these individuals to kind of explain where this like non-rational supplement comes from. Cultural history can help you there too. But I was, I was wondering if you could, yeah, talk a little bit about uh, your turn to, to, to psychology and individual as a way mm -hmm. to explain the history of capitalism. Yeah, so one point to relate back to the earlier discussion about the definition of capital, that capital is an asset that promises to yield the pecuniary profit. That's true, but it also competes with other kinds of yields, other kinds of psychic yields. Um, in a way, this would refer to Irving Fisher's mm. concept of psychic income, um, mm -hmm. unlike Babelin or Keynes, who focused on the, the pecuniary, especially Babelin, who focused on the pecuniary. So liquidity preference of the hoarding kind says that actually the security of storing value, um, even if I make no profit, right? Interest rates are at zero. I'm making no pecuniary gain, but this, the psychical gain of security, uh, I value more so than I value um, the, the financial profit from, um, from an asset. And so, you know, to me, um, I read Keynes, for my first book, and I used Keynes's concept of radical uncertainty in my first book, um, but it was really for this book that that I got deep into Keynes. And, and when you read the general theory, it's um, it's quite striking. You know, of course, the the perhaps the most important. I mean, this is your subject, Nick, but perhaps the most important critique of Keynesian macroeconomics, Keynesian macroeconomics, the sort of post-war MIT variety was that it wasn't micro-founded, it didn't have micro-foundation. And of course, when you read the general theory, it's nothing but. It's nothing but micro-foundation. It's nothing but micro-foundations. It's just propensity. And psychological laws and. That's it, that's all it is. It's nothing but propensities, motivation at the level of micro-level of individual um, psyche. And it's linked, right? It's linked to a, um, an explication of categories of analysis that explain the variables that one would look at in understanding the economic dynamics of capitalism. Um, liquidity preference, um, the central value of investment as the critical factor in establishing the dynamics of a capitalist economy. So I think that oftentimes, it, uh, I'm not an economist, oftentimes social scientists, 
uh, who are not economists, historians, critique economists for their account of rationality, mm-hmm. their kind of trans transhistorical account of, of economic rationality. Uh, you know, this is crazy. We're not all selfish egoists, as economists assume. Now, of course, they they know that, right? They just have to make those assumptions to to build the kind of models that they want to build. And so you critique you critique their account of economic rationality. You refer to things like social structure and culture and context instead of developing. Uh, your own kind of working account of economic motivation and how, how it relates to things like social structure, culture, history, and such. And so that's, you know, that to me, I, I, you know, Keynes was important for trying to develop, you know, such an account of economic motivation. I also think when you read Keynes, Freud is, it's, it's there. I mean, you know, I, I think it's pretty easy to establish that Keynes was engaging Freud while he was thinking about the general theory and mobilized a lot of Freud's concepts. And I think, you know, thinking about speculation as an inability to fix long-term on an object of investment, thinking about hoarding as a kind of neurotic overfixation on an object of, an object of investment. For me, that's very helpful, but, you know, maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe there's a better way to do it. But I think that, that historians and other social scientists, you know, need to try to, to, to think about at the level of psyche, how to develop under, an understanding of e- economic uh, motivation and rationality, irrationality that can be operationalized for understanding the economy. I think that's actually yeah. so. Important. We're gonna we're definitely gonna put uh, a link to that paper of yours uh, exploring the connection between Freud and Keynes in the show notes because uh, it's Good. it's great. Um, so so psychology then for you is a way of kind of like sublating or like dialectically incorporating sort of economic history that is perhaps a bit too rational, but then with the concerns of cultural, social, political historians who want some contact with that stuff, but don't, don't want the trans-historical logic of, of rational actor theory. I think that's right. And I think it's also a way to, I'm trying to think of the right word, to make culture not just um, illustrate, you know, illustrative or representative, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. actually to incorporate uh, culture in explanations for why what is happening is is happening. Uh, yeah. So I was I was reading Kindleberger just the other day, and he says that one of the most important things that explains, and this shows up in, in Barry Eichen Green's work as well, uh, why central bankers do what they do is the way that they remember the previous crisis. So that historical memory is a kind of it's an economic fundamental because it determines behavior, um, the kind of narratives mm-hmm. that you understand yourself to be a part of. Yeah, I think I think also you know that um, to kind of maybe jump back a little bit to the Lucas kind of critique of Keynesianism for not uh, incorporating expectations. Now, of course, Lucas refers to rational expectations. I might drop the rational, but I think yeah. the way that they think about expectations as being you know really central to the dynamics of a capitalist economy, I think is extraordinarily fruitful. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that, I mean, you know, sociologists, I think of Jens Beckert's work is, is working on this as well. There's all kinds of ways that I think that, that um, uh, disciplines across the social scientists, can, social sciences can engage uh, the problem of expectations. Yeah, I guess, I guess continuing on this kind of thread, um, I guess the role of cultural theory in, in, in the book, um, but also hearkening back to uh, some of your initial comments about kind of the inutility of uh, nostalgia for the industrial age and the sort of difficulties in narrating sort of what comes after, whether uh, post-industrial is even a useful term. One of my favorite parts of the book is uh, your chapter on Houston, uh, which you call the liquid city. Um, And it's kind of like a stand-in for this transitional moment, the sort of autumn, I guess, of industrial capital and the dawn of something new, uh, something much less uh, ordered, fixed, and you also bring in, in your description of Houston, uh, Houston's urban development, which is very different than the old industrial core cities of the US. Um, a lot of cultural theory, uh, namely postmodernism, uh, when you discuss the sort of uh, architecture of downtown Houston, and also you take examples from painting, from literature. So uh, yeah, I was also, and I also happen to know that you that Houston is your hometown, that you grew up there. So I was wondering if you want to uh, share some of yeah, your experiences, your views about Houston, and maybe what Houston, a city like Houston could tell us about, I guess, the future of a more service-based um, 
economy. Um, and yeah, I'll leave it at that. So thank you. It's one of my favorite parts of the book too. You know, I'm clearly personally invested in it. I, I like Houston. I grew up in Houston. I feel very comfortable there. It makes sense to me. I understand it. And I remember in college, because I went to college on the East Coast, the first time I'd have friends who came to Houston to visit me from places like, I don't know, New York. And, and they would get off a plane and we'd drive around and, and they would say, where are we? What is this? <laughs> is there a downtown? Which way are we going? Where do people live? You know, Houston has no zoning, so it's actually very hard. To, um, you know, lots of friends who found the city uh, to be illegible. Now, what's interesting about Houston as a post-industrial city, and many other Sunbelt cities like it, I don't think it's particularly unique in this regard, is that now, of course, it has an industrial base uh, because of petrochemicals having to do with oil. And I'll come back to that. That's, that's actually quite important. But nonetheless, you never had a post-war industrial society there. Like it, it never, it never existed. So it's not like a, it's not like a New York City. It's not like Pittsburgh. It's not like Cleveland. It's kind of struggling to reimagine the, the city, um, given an already existing industrial imprint. But instead, it's just something completely different. And the fact that it's so hard to know what it is, I think is interesting. Um, maybe it's a capitalism, it's a kind of urban landscape that's more difficult to understand than the industrial urban, you know, kind of Chicago city that we live in, a Chicago-like city. It's possible, mm -hmm. or maybe it's just a lot of the intellectual frameworks that were developed by industrial society to understand industrial cities just don't apply, um, you know, to a place like Houston. And of course, there's many urban sociologists who, who have worked on that problem. I'm not trying to suggest that there isn't work there. Um, but any, in any event, trying to understand like, how Houston works economically through services, through finance, through real estate, how it disrupts and transforms what I think is the central institution of industrial society, uh, the male, female, uh, breadwinner, homemaker, family. Uh, you know, I became kind of fascinated to kind of use Houston as, as a way to uh, to work through these transformations and then a city that I think um, demonstrates them or illustrates them so clearly because the, the, the past thing was never there. And so all you have to do is just look at it and pay attention. Um, finally, there is industry, there is oil. So I think it's fascinating about Houston. Um, it might not be an industrial city like Chicago, but nonetheless, it's a kind of urban development that's utterly dependent upon uh, fossil fuels. And of course, Houston's the, the critical node in the global economy of, of fossil mm -hmm. fuel. And I just find it to be um, remarkable that after 1980, as intellectual and political consciousness of climate change steadily increases, the mm -hmm. fastest growing city <laughs> in the country is Houston. You know, this a, a city of extraordinary sprawl. You can fit, fit Philadelphia, Chicago, Baltimore, and like three more cities inside of it. You know, extraordinary sprawl, um, extraordinary dependence upon fossil fuels. And then, of course, sits at the kind of crucial link within the global economy, given the city's ties to um, oil exploration throughout the world. Like this to me is kind of a mind-blowing um, phenomenon that says something about um, the politics of you know, of climate change and how deeply entrenched uh, an industrial, right, energy system is in our, I hate to use this term again, you know, delete it, post-industrial, you know, mm -hmm. way of life. Yeah, one of the other uh, points that you make in the book is that a lot of, which you just sort of covered um, very cogently, uh, is that a lot of the concepts that we use to even think history like structure and agency, structure is an industrial concept. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, just just trying to get to understand Houston, you have to use different metaphors. Maybe liquidity is well, the best I, one. Chris, networks, Chris, networks, or as Chris said, it, it's I don't, I don't know if this works, but you know, uh, liquid cities. That there's a way of yeah. of trying to use uh, liquidity as a category of analysis to understand capital, but also more broadly mm -hmm. as a metaphor to understand social life in this period. Maybe the, the penultimate question we want to ask you is, um, so if there, if there was some admirable achievements in the age of control, which was that it, it fixed capital on the ground and it 
was relatively egalitarian compared you know, historically speaking, high growth, low political tensions, maybe relative to, you know, fascists storming the capital. You know, what would it mean to bring back growth today? And, and can you even fix capital on the ground in a service economy? Or, or is the transition from an industrial to a more service-based economy, not a post-industrial one, but a service-based economy, um, does that sort of necessarily entail kind of the capital lifting off and levitating above the globe? So it's a great question. Obviously, it's a, it's a fundamental question. I guess where I'd start, if you want to be not nostalgic, but if you want to appreciate the merits of a post-war political economy, I, mean, I would start exactly where you did with, with its ability to, to fix capital on the ground, right? To hold it still for long enough periods of time where, where society at large can get things out of capital that it wants. And so the problem in the post-war period was not so much the inability to do that, but what it wanted out of capital, which was high income male, white male employment. Now, of course, if you wanted to hold capital, fix it on the ground today, how would you do that? Would you build a bunch of you know, factories to employ anybody? I think there the answer is, you know, is no. Um, and one of the forms of capital in the final part of the book is, is human capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it strikes me that one of the problems today, I guess this, this is another way to think about the post-war period. Who was it? I bet Nick would know this. Who, who, who was, I think it was Joan Robinson who said, the only thing worse than being exploited by capitalism yeah. is, 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 to is never not being exploited. Not being exploited yeah. like that. Okay, that's one way to think about, you know, what was great about the post-war period is that, you know, at least industrial capitalism, you know, respected people enough to exploit them. So I, I think now we have huge problems of exclusion and marginalization in the economy mm-hmm. uh, and, a, and a kind of capitalism that simply does not value many human beings. And so I think part of the answer has to be to, to change that. I think education has to be part of that. And I think there has to be economic programs that can reincorporate uh, large swaths of the population in the United States and other countries who have been you know, dramatically excluded by the way capitalism has come to function in the last 30 or 40 years, both respect to inequality of rewarding wealth, rewarding asset owners, uh, and also in terms of income, distributing you know, just an extraordinarily large share of its benefits to highly educated people who live in you know, particular settings, large cities on the coasts. Um, so that has to be part of the answer. And again, I don't think it's fixing capital in terms of, of building factories per se, but Certainly, it has to do with infrastructure. It has to do with you know large scale uh, projects of that kind, and then and then finding ways to to value people. That sounds like a political project we can get behind. It's always uh, risky to ask an historian to comment on current events. Uh, you know, we don't have any special insight uh, compared to anybody else. But I'm wondering if you think that in the epilogue of your of your book, you suggest that perhaps the coronavirus is going to be our entry into a new age of capitalism. Uh, so is this uh, is this an opportunity or is this um, just going to be more of the same in your mind? I guess you know, we're recording this just, you know, a few weeks into the Biden administration. I, I suppose, you know, it's it's been about as good as you could expect, given mm-hmm. that we're seeing a lot of the same people who have been in power you know, in previous administrations have, have returned. Mm-hmm. And so um, that I think. I think it makes one cynical, but it certainly sets the limits on, on one's expectations. But you know, when will we know that there's a new, you know, truly a kind of break and, and a new period beginning? I mean, I guess I'd point to two things. One we've talked about a little bit, the kind of regional disparities you see in the American economy, uh, you'd have to see a real shift there. And then second, you'd have to see pay growth. I mean, you just, you'd have to see growth in labor incomes. You'd have to see a pattern of macroeconomic expansion coming out of the coronavirus that's led by uh, broad-based uh, growth in pay uh, across the distribution, as opposed to what we've seen you know, since the 1980s, uh, which is a growth in asset values, which happens first, and then a tightening of labor markets, which kind of bumps up incomes towards the end. So I think if you saw those two things, then, then I think that's when we would know that perhaps you know, we've seen a fundamental shift in, 
um, in the logic. And, and I think both those things, as we've been talking about, is certainly dependent upon government action, but requires changing the existing logic in, in capital markets, how capital markets work and where they direct investment. All right. And with that, I think our time is up for today. Uh, John, thanks so much for coming on. Okay. Thanks so much. Hi, John. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson, with assistance from researchers Jackson Overpeck, Sophie Stuckenberg, and Rohan Venkat. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists, the Micro Metcalf Internship Program, as well as the University of Michigan UROP Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.